0: Once it looked like it was really going to happen, the staff and I all got together and we said, failure is not an option.
1: I'm Laura Whitley. In this edition of The Next Stop, a fascinating conversation with a true transit trailblazer. The Next next stop. Stop. The Next Stop. The Next Stop. Metro's Podcast. I'm very pleased to welcome today's guest, Ms. Shirley DeLibero. She is Metro's former CEO, among many other things, known to many as the Queen of Transit and to some, a very fortunate few, mom and grandma. Uh, Ms. DeLibero, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: It's my pleasure.
1: We are recognizing uh, you here at Metro this month during Black History Month as a transit trailblazer, and that's truly uh, what you have done during your career, not just here at Houston, but really all over uh, the country. Here in Houston, you oversaw the construction and early operation of Metro Rail, and you blazed trails uh, in so many places Uh, really shattering gender and racial barriers uh, through your career. I'm interested to know how you would describe that drive to not allow those barriers to stop you. Well,
0: you know, uh, um, how I got into the business anyway was strange. Um, I was divorced and had two children and uh, and I was uh, a product line rep for a company called Digital, and probably before your time when they had, the the computers were probably the size of a room. Um, And my mother told me that I would have to get a job uh, where I was staying in Boston and not traveling, because in that particular position, I was traveling a lot. And so I decided to, uh, they were looking for women actually in Boston, uh, Governor Dukakis at the time wanted to put more women in these non-traditional jobs. And it sounded like a great thing for me. So, you know, I signed on, got hired, but I can tell you was not an easy task. I was the, the first job I got at the T. I was the um, product line manager refurbishing old streetcars. And in that job all of my i was in charge of probably 300 people but they were mechanics they were carpenters because we were literally taking the old streetcars apart and putting them back together and boston the t uh at that time was predominantly irish catholic Uh, and I tell everybody the only thing I had going for me was that I was Catholic, so I figured I was safe. Uh, (laughs) But it was a tough job, really. Uh, In fact, I saw so much racial discrimination at that job because every time I would walk on the floor uh, to check and make sure they were all doing their jobs and everything, you would hear this echo out there, and they would say, here comes.
1: They would holler out racial epithets as she approached.
0: Then they put, when I left at night, they would write all these obscenities on my door. Uh, so, you know, my years there were pretty tough and you had to be thick-skinned. Uh, to I knew that I loved the industry and that I wanted someday to uh, be a general manager somewhere. And I knew I was going to run into... Um, I didn't realize how much racism uh, there was in, in that shop, but uh, it taught me to be pretty tough and, and to uh, understand and not take it personal.
1: Yeah, can you tell, talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I, I, you know that not taking it personal and being able to then, despite that very hostile environment uh, focus on your own personal and professional goals?
0: I realized that these were pretty sure that this racism stemmed from when they were kids, because you have to be taught this. And uh, and I tried to realize what my goal was. You know, I, I had to look beyond, um, beyond this. You know, I, I kind of convinced myself that sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never harm me. And I think, Um, The fact that it was a good paying job, I was divorced with two children, um, so I needed the job. Um, So I think it helped toughen me up for later years. I have to tell you though, when I left that job, they loved me. It took a while, but they loved me when I left.
1: (laughs) no doubt and you said you developed a thick skin it sounds like you came in with one so what was the turning point i mean what you said they they when you left they loved you what happened
0: well what happened was one day we had a serious problem on the train uh, on the uh one of the vehicles that we were uh refurbishing and um and so when I went home that night, I was looking at schematics and trying to figure out what was wrong. And um, and one of the somebody called me at home to tell me what the problem was, and that when I bring everybody together on the next day, I should tell them that this is the problem and and send somebody to fix it. And we had one loudmouth there who always uh, had a lot to say. And and this guy said, you should have him go and and fix it. So I thought about it all night. I said, either I'm going to be a hero or they're setting me up. And my mother used to instill in me that there are good people out there and there's good in everyone, which sometimes I found hard to believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, But anyway, I decided on my way into work that I was going to trust this person, Never, he wouldn't give me his name or anything. And uh, so when I got there, I got everybody together and I told them what I thought the problem was. And and the loud mouth that said, oh yeah, she thinks she knows everything, you know she doesn't know what she's talking about. I said, well, you go down. And this is what I think the remedy is. And I, I did verbatim what the guy told me on the phone. And I was dying <laughs> because I said, Oh, my God, if this doesn't work, I'm going to be the biggest jerk. Uh, and about 20 minutes later, so it solved the problem. I never, ever found out who this person was. And I gained their respect. Because after a while, they were, after that, they would say, hey, hey, boss, we got this problem. I said, go figure it out. That's what I'm paying you for. So... <laughs> They thought I was, so I think the reason that they eventually respected me and the name calling stopped was because they they thought, you know, like I was one of them and
1: knew my stuff. Wow. Well, and it sounds like you, you're saying that you, uh, then empowered your staff to be problem solvers. And is that, is that a, a practice that you carried with you throughout your career in management and tr- across the transit agencies you worked?
0: Right. I, I always, um, I always allowed people to do their own thing. I mean, it was very important to me that, um, you know, that I learned, I mean, I, I read schematics and I learned about the vehicles, but I also empowered them to, uh, to do their thing. I mean, that's what they were hired for. That was their expertise. And the real reason that I did after that was because nobody was calling me and giving me any more directions. So <laughs> they had to, you know, they had to figure it out.
1: No no, um, no more anonymous tips, right? <laughs> right, no more anonymous tips. <laughs> so what was it about public transit that, you know, caught you in your imagination and, and sort of turned the trajectory of, you know, a, just a, a kind of a good paying job uh, into something that you wanted to be a profession?
0: Because before that, I was in the manufacturing world. And, and then, you know, at digital, where I was a product line rep. And, you know, what I felt about transportation was that transportation is very important for the economy, for people to be able to go to their places of worship, to the doctors, to the market. And I felt like every night when I came home, I felt good about it, that we're helping people move. And that meant a lot. It was very rewarding to me.
1: Absolutely. I can identify. Actually, I, I told you my colleague, Monica Rus, and I are on the Uh, on the line here on the line both on the line and um, we often uh, talk about that just how impactful and meaningful the work is uh, working in public transit
0: that's true
1: can you tell me a little bit about the steps you took in terms of your your strategy and um, staying on course to reach your goal of being a gm
0: So I I put together in my mind a five year plan. And my plan was um, if I was at any one of these places more than five years and I didn't get promoted, it was time to move on because I really wanted to be able to learn all the modes.
1: And learn. she did, building a career after leaving Boston that included stops in Washington, D.C., Dallas, New Jersey, and eventually, after much success, a stop in Houston. And that started with a call from Mayor Lee Brown. Uh, Can you tell me about that? Yeah, Yeah, Mayor Lee Brown
0: called me and he said, you know, I want my legacy to be light rail here in Houston. And I said, good luck i said you guys have been trying for 30 years to build it it ain't gonna happen and he said to me well if dallas can do it houston can do it and i said well good luck he said well but everybody i talk to when i say you know who who should we bring here your name keeps coming up i said well flattery will get you nowhere (laughs) i said i appreciate You know, I said, because I I have worked very hard to do good jobs at every transit authority I've been. I said, but uh, I said, my goal is to retire from here. And I think at that time now, so that was 99.
1: You were in your uh, early
0: 60s, right? I was in my early 60s. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I have no intention of going back to Houston. He said, well, just come and interview and let's talk. At the end of the conversation, I said, I'm coming.
1: So you came, you know, you knew that getting light rail in Houston would be challenging. Why did you feel like it was something worth fighting for? So it was,
0: it was tough, but the mayor was so emphatic about this being his legacy and, uh, and wanting to do that, that we all pitched in. And I can tell you, we worked our butts off to get this thing to happen. And once it looked like it was really gonna happen, the staff and I all got together and we said, failure is not an option. It was very rewarding. And it was very, I probably had, as I say, talented folks and everybody worked, you know, we knew nobody could go on vacation. So those five weeks I had (laughs) didn't mean anything because, I, you know, we were all working to make this happen.
1: The groundbreaking was actually 20 years ago next month.
0: Wow, yeah, Jesus, that's right. Oh. Wow, well, time flies when you're having fun.
1: It certainly does. What do you re- recall from that time? And in- That day was
0: a fabulous day. First, you know, my, my kids got to see what I do for a living. And really, appreciate they were like, wow my you built this, you know, so I was a hero for a day. Um and you know it was very gratifying to see the people that were out there that, you know, everybody says, well, you're gonna open on January 1st, no one's gonna come out there. I said, Do you want to bet we'll have a mob out there. Because it was something new for the system. And we picked a very state of the art sleek vehicle that kind of went in with Houston and the spaceships and the whole bit. So it was a glorious day and it was funny because the night before the opening, I I talked to the mayor and I said, I said, you know, I've never built anything from start to finish and I would love to drive that first car out. And he laughed at me and he looked at me and he said, get over it. So he drove the first car out, which was appropriate. <laughs> so it was a great day. It was a beautiful day out, and you know the funniest thing is we were we had a VIP car that was supposed to be just you know the mayors and all the mucky mucks in that first car, and as a result, some people snuck in that car, so it was really loaded. And I was nervous as hell because I know we have a, you have a weight restriction. And mm-hmm. it looked like we were way beyond that. <laughs> and so when the mayor was up front in the seat, and there was an operator directing him how to go, it was taking a long time for the train to move. And I was like, oh, please, God, let this train move. <laughs> and just as I said that, it moved. And we went on our way. And it was a, a fabulous opening.
1: No doubt, how do you think that the obstacles and barriers that you broke throughout your career prepared you to break the this barrier uh, in at Metro and in Houston in terms of the opposition that there was to this type of transit expansion?
0: I think by the time I got to Houston, I was hot, hot at Hannah. (laughs) And and I wasn't taking no for an answer. And I went to all the community uh, meetings, and some of them we got beat up pretty badly. Uh, But I knew that number one, Houston needed light rail. Yeah, the hospital there. This was a perfect, perfect uh, first line. Several people said, oh, you should put it on Fannin downtown and not on main and i'm like no i said we're putting it on main because once we build this system this city is going to flourish rail it stimulates the economy i said it's very different than bus because you can move a bus stop anywhere the rail once you put it down is pretty stationary and so developers will want to build around it because they know the rail's not going anywhere So I think I kind of convinced him, I know I convinced him to go on Main Street and then on Fannin further up because of all the hospitals there and the hospital workers and and I swear to God, we started every meeting saying failure is not an option.
1: Failure is not an option, yeah. and 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 what you say is true. I mean, now we're looking, uh, we're up to three different lines, and uh, you know, continue to get feedback that the property values, in terms of how much they've yeah. grown, uh, you're right. It ha- it truly has been transformative. You have since retired and have been honored in the Hall of Fame by the American. Public Transportation Association and have scholarships uh, in your honor. And have that building
0: in my name down and there. The, the building in oh your name. God, I was so excited when they, we at my last meeting there with the board, they gave me this proclamation and they gave me these a pen and something. And I was walking away and the chairman said, you don't want this? And it was a picture of the building with my name on it. And I cried like a baby. <laughs> but And it's, it, it is my wallpaper on my phone. It is on my computer. That building is everywhere.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I'm just interested to know, you know, in this month, Black History Month, and even in this time where there's so many more conversations um, in the public discourse um, about systemic racism and um, how we deal with that. You know, as as a country and as people, how do you view things, and and and, and what is what is your advice?
0: You know, it's tough because Boston is, you know, Boston's always been known for its lack of diversity and its racial problems, and so I grew up with them really. But uh, I don't know. Uh, it's I think it's ignorance. Um, you know, people. I just try to find the good in everybody. I mean, you know, and that's the thing my mother taught me when I was little, but I've never allowed myself to think any different. So when, you know, when I ran into these things, or even now when I talk to folks that I know
1: One of the things, though, I I, I read about you is during your career in management, and you talked about it, you know, you said you grew up largely in a multicultural environment there in Boston, but you worked to bring down those barriers within your staff, kind of bringing folks together. I understand through, like, dinners at your house. Can you tell me about that and how, how that the role that that plays so
0: much fun. Uh, we, we used to have, uh, the United way and, and, and the employees would, you know, donate to the United way. And I decided that we were going to have a drawing and all the money was going to go to the United way, but we were going to have a drawing. People had to put their money in there and I was going to pick five people. And I didn't care if they were a management or if they were the janitor it did not matter. And we were going to, I was going to have a dinner at my house and I was going to do the cooking. So it wasn't going to be one of these where you cater and I was going to do it. So I had uh, one year, I had a bus operator, a black bus operator. I had a white mechanic. I had an Asian, um, I think she was a lawyer there at the time, but we had a really mix of people, and it was awesome. And they saw me in a different element. Um, they saw me cooking and waiting on them, and and it became such a hit that I did it every year till I left. And it gave me a good opportunity to to talk to different people and find out their background and what enticed them to come to Metro and the whole bit. So it was, a, it was very rewarding for not only them, but for me.
1: Well, an eye opening, too, because again, it yeah. exposed, you know, had people that wouldn't um, normally interact interact with one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and was, I- you know, as we close out here, what do you think the future holds for women and minorities I- in the in the transit industry?
0: I think we've come a long way in the transit authority. There were two women that I had mentored over the years, and now one is uh, heading the transit authority in uh, Cleveland. The other one is in, I think she's in Alabama, but they just picked another Black female in Cincinnati.
1: And in Um, Denver
0: as well. And in Denver, yes. And it's happening, and I'm excited about it. We bring a different perspective.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, It's happening. What parting words or advice do you have uh, for this next generation? What do you have for all of us? What do you tell your grandkids?
0: (laughs) When I talk to the young people today is that, you know, we worked really hard to get where we got. And, And hard work, that hasn't changed. You still have to put the effort in there. And if you do a good job, and you're you're conscientious, and you're a good person. People recognize that. I mean, when I when I look at my career, uh, you know, other than the T applying for a job, that was the last job I ever applied for. Everything else became word of mouth. People heard about me, and and so that's what I think you millennials have to learn and and <laughs> and appreciate nothing is a given.
1: You got to work for it. Hard work. Hard work. Thank you so much for your contributions. Shirley Libero, our Metro Transit Trailblazer. Thank you so much for joining the next stop today.
0: You're welcome. And the next time I come to Houston, I'm going to come and visit you.
1: That would be fantastic. That, that would be lovely. I look forward to, to, to meeting you and hopefully we'll be able to travel here before too long.
0: I know, I know. And you know, the funniest thing is I tell everybody the transit career is, has, been, has been great to me. I can live very comfortably now. But I also say that every one of the transit properties that I work, I, I leave a little of, of my heart there. <laughs> um, and I think what, what I love about it is I was in Washington maybe two years ago and I was crossing the street and I was with some other people. The bus driver pulled over to the side of the road, bus full of people, which he shouldn't have done, <laughs> got out, Mr. Libro, Mr. Libro and give me a big hug. Oh and, and that's the stuff that I, that's the most rewarding. I mean, it was rewarding being able to provide service to make people's lives easier, but also the many, many wonderful employees that I've had over the years. Because I tell everybody, without them, I couldn't have done it. No one person can do this. You need need a village. And I had not only a great village, but very conscientious people. See, when I talk about it, I get (laughs) teary-eyed.
1: That's all for this edition of The Next Stop. I'm Laura Whitley. If you'd like to check out more episodes, you can find them on our website or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or Google Play. And while you're there, if you could leave us a rating or review, that'll help us out a lot. Until next time, drive less, do more with Metro.